Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Dr. Eloise Stevens. Eloise is a computational astrophysicist who studies stellar evolution and how massive stars live and die, specifically the ones that die as kilonovae. Join us as we talk about the life cycles of stars, kilonovae, and roller derby. Welcome, Eloise. Thank you for joining me on Steam Powered. I'm so happy to have you on here. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so we'll get straight into it. Um, you started off in physics and astronomy. So what mm-hmm. drew you to that field? Right. So I was always uh, interested in space when I was a kid and not like stargazing and looking at constellations. I never had a telescope, but understanding how the world works, especially stars, black holes, galaxies, because these things are so vast and the numbers are just so extreme and incredible that they always blew my mind. And I didn't realize that it was a career until quite late. I don't really remember when, like at what age I realized that's something I could get into, uh, like properly as a career, but it wasn't like, it was towards the end of my teenage years properly because none of my family are academics in <laughs> simple form. That is not a thing. Like we had some higher education, but not like, no. Yeah. Um, and but I realized when I was looking at unis and where I could go, you know, what kind of courses I could do that astronomy was a course I could pick. And I was like, oh, my God, that's kind of crazy. How <laughs> that? Should I do this? Yeah. And I nearly didn't do it, actually, because oh. astronomy is physics. It's a sub it's a sub uh, subject of physics. Um, and I had marks that were a little bit like they were fine but like i had better marks in chemistry and stuff like that which is yeah. a way to pick it to pick a degree like do not do that ever like don't yes. pick <laughs> the best marks like stupid um so i nearly didn't do it but thankfully i did uh, and i'm still here today so here we are that's amazing so did you feel that oh because your physics wasn't as strong did you find that more challenging or was that just you know complete red herring for you like it just wasn't really a factor it was it was gonna be a red herring like because it, it was it was a, a marginal difference of like one mark out of 20 or so oh wow okay <laughs> yeah it was tiny being <laughs> in my head like it was silly um and no 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 I, if, physics was fine I, I was okay at all the science subjects um like they're just tougher in general because uh, you know you can sort of hand wave your way through literature you can't really <laughs> through uh, derivations not really yeah it's a little bit more precise <laughs> um no it was fine when you decided you want to do astronomy like where did you see that course taking you what sort of you know career and work did you think it was going to you know lead to so by the time i was looking at uni i was aware that pieces were a thing i know that uh, I don't know when I realized pages were a thing. That's such a weird thing. Like, I can't remember what I was thinking 10 years ago. But <laughs> I, knew, I knew the whole thing. <laughs> uh, because how I picked my university. Um, I picked my university uh, for my undergrad because they had a program in fourth year, so their master's year in England, that uh, selected one or two candidates. So some of 
the best in the in in the year uh, to go to La Palma in the Canary Islands to work for an observatory. And I remember thinking, wow. this sounds like an like a, 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 a ticket. That's a goal. PhD, <laughs> like that sounds like like a ticket, like like something that helps you stand out if you're going to seek a career in astronomy. And that's yeah. why I picked that university. And then four years later, I ended up in that program. So that 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 was kind of the idea. Then after that, kind of like you know, there's not there's not much point planning for you know seven years ahead anyway yeah no uh, exactly but yeah so that's brilliant so what did you do at the observatory well uh i observed uh <laughs> <laughs> so i was what's called a support astronomer so when you are uh just some astronomer that needs data you can sometimes go to the telescope sometimes it's not necessary sometimes it's just impossible um, so if you do programs that are really time sensitive, for example, you're observing a supernova that might happen, you don't know when, um, it happens one day and then you need to observe, you can't plan those observations, you can't book plane tickets, you can't do anything like that. So those are things you just kind of send an email, you've organized things with the observatory before sending out the one. But if it's something like a star that just is going to stay there or a galaxy or whatever, you might go to the observatory to take the data yourself. That being said, not every astronomer is, is <laughs> in how every telescope works and every instrument on the telescope. So you need people that will help the astronomers navigate how the telescope works. In some observatories or some bigger telescopes, you have a telescope operator who moves the telescope around and a support astronomer, an instrument specialist, who will also help the astronomer acquire the data. So as it goes through the instrument, what kind of settings you need, make sure that everything works. If there's an issue, help along with that. Um, at the observatory where I was at, the telescopes, the specific telescope was called the Isaac Newton, Newton Telescope, uh, like the scientist. And so it, it's a very ancient thing. <laughs> if you don't have that much money, so there's only one support astronomer, you're there for the first half a night. You show the, um, the telescope around to the astronomers. You're like, so this is how you start the telescope. This is how you move it around. These are the steps you have to follow. If stuff goes wrong, here is how you turn it off and on again. <laughs> <laughs> Which is literally what we did. Like all of the different things you can turn off and on again, um, <laughs> do it at the appropriate time. And usually it fixes things. Yeah, and uh, and you're there for the first half a night with them to help them walk them through it. Uh, then you go to bed at the residencia, but you're still on call for that rest of the night. If they need help, they'll call you up. You can drive back to the to the mountain because the rest yeah well, doesn't matter. And then you just uh, go back down the mountain the next day and they continue with their observations uh, <laughs> whatever three days a week two weeks that they have um usually no more than like oh, more than a week is pretty rare but yeah wow and then you go back uh, for the next round of observers who needs more help to figure it out that's so cool so how long did you do that for about a year yeah so that was my master's year so i was still a student of the University of Sheffield, where I did my undergrad, um, and also my PhD, actually. Um, so I was still doing a project with them, um, just some data reduction, uh, small, well, small-ish. Uh, I mean, it took the whole year. Like, 
compared to a PGO or a postdoc, a project um, that I did on top of being a support astronomer. Uh, but a component of my mark was knowing how the telescope works and and you know helping you know doing my job with that. So that is so awesome. That's brilliant. So after that, yeah, obviously not a problem to get into the PhD program. It wasn't too bad. No. <laughs> no? <laughs> well, no. The, the the people at the university I was I was like, hey, come back, come back. Yes, yeah, so I did. I feel actually. That's great. So what did you focus on for your PhD? Right. So I did something completely different for my PhD. Uh, so during my master's, I worked on near-Earth asteroid. That's what my project was about, uh, mm-hmm. looking at how they evolve, their, their rotation period, that kind of stuff. And for my PhD, I worked on supernovae and what kind of shapes they have in three dimensions, trying to understand that better because it's uh, it's kind of, it's not just kind of, it's very difficult uh, to obtain three-dimensional information on something that is just a dot in the sky, literally. Yes. When you observe these things as they appear, it's one dot. So it's not like it's a, you go from basically zero dimensions to three dimensions. And, and doing that requires uh, specific techniques. Um, it's something called spectroporometry, which I'm not going to go into details because <laughs> it's is like there, there are way too many syllables in this word. This is not okay. <laughs> And uh, cool. and so yeah, you can you can get three dimensional information from from that stuff, but it, it takes a while. Um, and so I read new data. I also uh, by the end of my PhD reanalyzed data that was taken twenty five years prior in nineteen ninety three because the field has evolved so much since then. Yeah. Um, that with you know the knowledge of the field that I'd acquired in my PhD, you can really look at this with a with a brand new eye and and get so much more information out of this data. And what's really interesting is that that twenty five year old data, I still haven't analyzed it to its full potential i know yeah. i have not there are features in there that we do not fully understand because we don't have the models yet and it, i find that super exciting that it's like i looked at this 25 years later and i found so much more and i know for a fact that there is so much more to come even though you know all this information is old you're just going to be able to keep learning from it as time mm-hmm. goes on like the next generation of astronomers are going to be able to do the same exactly. thing and find more stuff exactly that's the, cool the field is still 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 evolving that's brilliant. So what sort of what sort of things can you learn from understanding the shape of a supernova? So at first, and that that's kind of the point of that 25-year-old analysis, and that's why they stopped there, people were just wondering, are they spherical? Um, because that tells you about the shape of the explosion, which can tell you about the mechanism, which was not fully understood yet. Um, and so when they started getting those data, they were like, oh my God, it's not spherical at all. Uh, <laughs> you can't just stop there. They were like, oh, it's not a sphere. Brilliant paper. Um, <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> just, just go to bed, drink some water. We're done, guys. Um, yep. <laughs> so there's loads of other things you can, you can figure out. Um, you can figure out about the, the, the location of different elements and, and how clumpy the ejector is. So there is... Um, some degeneracy in the that's why it's so difficult to do without models um, and that's why the analyses are limited when you're just kind of analyzing these things by hand is because yeah. um, you know the you can see the ejector is not homogeneous and there's different uh, things happening at different depths within the ejector so like um, if you imagine your like the explosion in 
concentric circles or like ellipses yeah. because it's not a circle. There's different things happening at different depths. So you'll have um, areas that show more features of calcium or oxygen. Um, and and you, can, you can try and um, reproduce that in models to see if you can get the, the, the same features, the same levels of clumpiness, the same levels of homogeneity. There is one really interesting thing I, I found in one of the objects where we saw um, big clumps of calcium and oxygen get that had come from the core um, yeah. that were very far out in the in the explosion and 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 it could be uh, a sign that there was a jet that helped power this uh, this supernova because the the ejector was oblong so it had that kind of, that yeah. kind of elongated shape um, which can be for a number of reasons but that kind of supernova is associated with jets so it's like well maybe there's there, there could be something like that but also what you know is that if there is a jet in those directions, then it will entrain some of the material from deep inside the core of the star to the outside. Yeah. And we kind of saw that, which is pretty awesome. But you can't, you know, you can't uh, be 100% sure unless you have numerical models that yeah. proper, proper things are. I'd love to see that kind of stuff being done by colleagues in the future. Uh, but that was pretty exciting. because That is very cool. <laughs> so. And yeah, because like even I mean, you think about you know terrestrial explosions. I mean, you've got all the different layers of the different um, reactions that occur inside, but it also depends on the composition. So, you know, you you are able. Can you tell what the star is composed of when it's supernovas? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that's the spectroscopy aspect of things. So with spectroscopy, you can tell different features, um, like different colors of light are brighter because of different elements. Um, now it's a mixture of whether the element actually is here and whether the conditions to make that thing shine is also here. Uh, so this yeah. is a combination of two of the two. Uh, but then with the presence of these features, with the polarimetry, you can tell whereabouts it is on the sky. So if you picture the 2D like sky, you can tell whereabouts it is in the yeah. space. And with something called the Doppler shift, so whether something is light is bluer or redder than you expect, than you expect, you can tell at what depth it is, and that's how you can retrieve this three-dimensional information because the polarimetry gives you information on the plane of the sky, so in two D, and then with the things we know how to do with spectroscopy, you can get that notion of depth, and that's really awesome. That is very awesome. So is that what you've written your code for? That's, well, I wrote some code for that, but uh, that's not my, the main uh, stuff that I do anymore, actually. I did that for my thesis, Ooh. but I moved out of that field. Well, I keep saying that. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I'm not active in the field anymore. I still talk about some of the work that I did in my, in my thesis. I'm giving a talk on it next week um and, and stuff so i still try to advertise some of the work that was done but i am not an active uh, collaborator of anything because i'm busy with other things um at the moment that's very cool so what are those other things <laughs> right so i'm i work in stellar evolution now so that kind of it's it's a slightly different field but it 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 does bring back to your like ball ball down supernovae again if you want it yeah. to yeah um, because I <laughs> figure out how massive stars live and die, and many of them die as supernovae. So the main yes. point of what I do is figuring out uh, how they die as kilonovae, which is a different type of explosion that happens when two neutron stars merge together 
and then they explode. And in the process, they also create gravitational waves as they are yeah. approaching, as they are spiraling in. Um, and these gravitational waves can be detected, which is the exciting thing, because that's that's the new field. You know, gravitational waves, it, we saw the first ones in 2015. It's all new. Yeah. Um, we've only seen so far one detection of a neutron star, neutron star merger with the gravitational waves and with the explosion. And if we can have all of this information from the waves, from the from the light of the explosion, we can tell a lot about the system itself that exploded. And then people like me and my boss and, and our teams um, can try and figure out what stars came before that. We try to rewound, rewind the clock um, wow. with stellar models because these stellar models um, take stars from their birth and then evolve them through time and tell you what they're going to look like every step of the way. And so what you can do after that is go and compare the observations of your observational friends. <laughs> go up and take pictures and you compare yeah. the models and you see what matches and what doesn't match. And this way you can figure out a star's past and a star's future. That is brilliant. So because you know the life cycle of a star is you know it could be millennia it's a very long time scale it it's it's crazy it it, between three million years and trillions of years longer than the current universe yeah so how do you because of how long we've been doing this sort of stuff or rather you guys have been doing this sort of stuff like the amount of time that we have had to collect this kind of information is just kind of like this tiny yeah. little thing compared to like the entire life scale. So how do you extrapolate that much information? It, that's such a good question. I, I get that question all the time. So one of the hardest thing in astronomy is that you're basically stuck with one picture in time <laughs> and you can't repeat the experiment in the lab because the conditions of space are so extreme. The cannot exist on earth uh, for most things and so computers are the answer to that now fortunately space is a fantastic lab that has many different regions um, that create many different conditions and we can observe those so there are clusters that are very young there are stellar what we call stellar nurseries uh, or h2 regions for the for the people in the know uh, there are in the galaxy and in nearby galaxy where we can observe very young stellar populations. Uh, we, can, we can look at their characteristics and see how well it matches with our models. Uh, we can look at more distant galaxies that are that have much older stellar populations, see what characteristics they have, see how well it matches with our older stellar populations. And so although we don't have the movie of how one galaxy has evolved, like over time from the birth of the universe until now, we can sort of put that puzzle together using different galaxies that cover a range of ages and compositions and sizes and etc. etc. So that's how we kind of try and put that back together. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. So just taking all the snapshots and just sort of getting the comparisons. Yeah. Exactly. You take all of the different pictures that the universe has given you and you try and build a coherent one uh, with the help of physics as well. You know, it's not just, um, it's not guesswork. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've tried trying to put physics in that too. Uh, <laughs> and the good thing with computers getting this good is that the more, the, the better the computers get, the more physics you can put in. 
because physics is computationally quite intensive. If you're going to, t the more things you try and take into account, um, the, the more calculations you need to do. Um, it's, uh, you know, we have loads of different teams uh, that have different simulations at different scales because you can't, at the moment, you, you, you can't have one simulation that covers everything, everything from no. the minute, you know, nuclear synthesis in the core of stars to, the, you know, how a star shines and what it's going to look like to how it interacts with its companion to how that system interacts with nearby system to how this cluster interacts with other clusters to how that forms a galaxy to how that... <laughs> scales are insane. Like, I cannot emphasize yeah. this. The scales are insane. So not only do you need multiple snapshots from the universe to compare to your simulations, but you need multiple, like, snapshot simulations um, that work on different scales in order for you to be able to build that big picture. Yeah, because you can't just get, you can't get a better idea just from a single model. You need to be able to see all the possibilities of all the different models that could possibly be created. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many different fields that, you know, you, you need something that will work for that field, that, will, that yeah, is relevant definitely. to that scale. Yeah, and then you end up being very super focused on one very particular area like yourself. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting because I'm not actually that focused. I mean, I'll <laughs> to a late person, I am. Um, but I, I, I'm kind of the ugly little part of me because I'm like, I did no Earth, like, I, I did Novi in my undergrad, then I did near Earth Astros in my master's, then I did Supernovi in my. <laughs> now I'm doing stellar evolution and another kind of explosion. I'm all over the place. Like, yeah. <laughs> Precision is my second name. I know people who've been doing the same stuff for like a decade and a half. My husband still uses some of the codes that his supervisor gave him during his oh, PhD wow. because he's been doing the same sort of stuff and an extension of that stuff, which is great. Like, I'm kind of envious of those people because it's like, oh my God, you are the expert in that thing. Well, <laughs> we'll see what happens next month, I guess. Yeah, but that's still very cool because all the stuff that you do, even though it is covering a wide range within that field you know it, it still informs each other it still carries one to the other and there's a lot of stuff that does interrelate yeah I, I hope i can bridge the gap between different fields because i have this kind of wide view rather than um being stuck in one in one niche yeah that's very neat so you know you mentioned that you know there's only been one observation for kilonova but how okay because a lot of stuff is being collected by all the telescopes so you have a ton of data and i'm guessing like did they just see this thing and went this is a this is like a supernova but not how did they realize there was a thing that's such a good question oh i love the, the discovery of the kilonova is one of the best story I've <laughs> I, <laughs> I was on the outskirts of the field so i'm not on any of the papers but i knew the people that worked on that stuff so People knew that Kilonova were going to be a thing. Uh, like there were still debates about what it was going to be called, uh, but it, it had already been in the literature. People had thought about what a neutron star, neutron star merger could be. People already thought that they were the um, uh, the cause of what we call short gamma ray burst. There's another kind of gamma ray burst that's long, which is why we have the short in front. Um, but just nobody was sure until you could actually see it. Um, and so what happened is that LIGO, which the people that observed the gravitational waves were doing their thing, 
and they saw a neutron star merger. And they can tell from the gravitational waves because the signature is very different from a black hole merger because the objects are much smaller. <laughs> they don't have the same mass yeah. at all. And so they can tell exactly what kind of mass the objects have. And they were like, this is neutron star, neutron star star. This is... And they can also tell you roughly what distance it's at. And they were like, this is nearby. This is really close. This is good, guys. Um, and so once that news came out, uh, I mean, it was kind of, you know, they kept a lid on it, but a third of the <laughs> a third of the astronomers, of all of the astronomers, knew about what was going on. <laughs> uh, like, Best it, kept it, secret. But, <laughs> like, so basically all of the things they had put in place, because people had thought about that possibility and they had follow-up strategies. So what you do in that mm -hmm. sort of case when you think, okay, we might be able to observe this this kind this you know this sort of cool stuff you can put in um uh sorry um you, you can put in requests at the telescopes ahead of time saying if this stuff happens then we will need this sort of time um or in that case it can be so exceptional that the people at, that you know direct the telescopes are like we will just take control of the telescopes for a little while. Sorry for the people that are already here. <laughs> My husband was observing at the VLT at the time. And so they nice. took two hours from him every night at the beginning of his night to observe <laughs> the object. Um, <laughs> and so basically all of the telescopes that could look at it looked at it and all the wavelengths that they could. Um, now, very quickly, the found um they, they had found the counterpart the, so the the light from the object and they managed to find it because they didn't just get the gravitational wave they also got the gamma ray burst and that's very cool because that allows you to kind of it helps them triangulate the origin of the signal and so they had a bunch of you know small telescope that can move really quickly like look at all, all the like all of the galaxies <laughs> of the sky like oh my god where is it where is it where is it and they found <laughs> it. and <laughs> and when they found it all of the big telescopes that are big and clunky or whatever that need someone special to be like hey we're going to take 2 hours of your time then <laughs> do that in the follow in the following days and nice. so obviously it was a secret but then because everyone was like, people were like, well, where, where is my telescope time going? <laughs> looking at the logs of the telescope to be like, well, they're looking at this position exactly. <laughs> so everyone knew. There must be something going on here. We need to have a look too. <laughs> everyone, everyone, everyone knew kind of where the object was. Like they, it was so secret. Like they weren't allowed to be in the um, control room of the telescope in case someone saw the spectrum coming and like they didn't want to get scooped and everything. <laughs> Um, so it was the worst cave secret in astronomy also because one one of my mates, he's a he's one is one of the biggest theorists of the of the late second half of the twentieth century. He writes books about supernovae and stuff. He tweeted about it. Bless him. <laughs> he was like, Oh my god, electromagnetic counterpart to a neutron star merger, blow your socks off on Twitter without anyone. <laughs> Before before any announcement, official announcements, uh, so he got reprimanded a little bit. Everyone, <laughs> okay. um, so everyone knew, um, and eventually, you know, the the papers came out, and and it was great. But uh, yeah, it was definitely the worst kept secret in astronomy, and that's why it makes me laugh when people are like, "Oh my god, you know, there is alien life, and they they're just hiding it from us." It's like if astronomers know something, exciting, we can't keep a secret. <laughs> 
secret. Like this is always the lie. Cause no, no way. <laughs> there is no way they could possibly keep it this from anybody else. <laughs> That's brilliant. And it it's funny because you're keeping a secret from a bunch of people whose sole job is to extrapolate information from the little that they've got. <laughs> Exactly, it's like that's not gonna happen. It, they, <laughs> they just want to keep it a secret enough that nobody publishes a paper, you know, they Before, don't want to yeah. It, yeah, which you understand, you know, because they've put a lot of time and effort into that. Um, exactly, yeah. Yeah, it was very funny. <laughs> that is great, that's such a brilliant story. <laughs> so, you know, with all of these observations, like because you can book time in, that suggests that all of these events don't happen so quickly that you can't have a little bit of time to prepare. So how, how long did it take for the Kielonova event to occur? Um, so once, so the gravitational wave happened, the short gamma ray burst occurred 1.74 seconds later. So the telescope was already observing and the timestamp was, was one of the smoking guns that the two were connected. That was very important. Yeah. Um, but then the kilonova starts fading in a few days. And so you have to be extremely fast. So once they had a triangulation between the gravitational wave and the, uh, and the gamma ray burst, you know, in the next day, they, 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 I can't remember if it's in the next day or the next 48 hours that they found the, the counterpart. I'll have to look that up. But um, um, they found it really quickly because they managed to catch the, the final rise of it. Yeah. It's, Bands, which only happens in five days um so they, they they did a fantastic job and you have to if you're going to get good data on these objects because supernovae happen on a time scale like it takes a few weeks for them to fade out of uh, i mean obviously it depends on how bright they are to begin with um but if you can catch a good rise and and they fade away it within a month and a half they're gone um, yeah. Kilonova rises on the time scale of like five days a week instead of three weeks, so you wow. have to be three times as fast, roughly. That's pretty cool. So, given the vastness of space and the number of potential events that could be occurring that are worth looking at, how do you even begin to know how to focus your attentions to know to expect? all of these things or to know where to look for it's just chance a little bit yes so um there there is a big a big thing with chance <laughs> because we don't know the rates exactly because we've not seen that many so we expected to see many more neutron star mergers with um further um gravitational wave observations we haven't seen that many which is quite interesting um yeah Maybe it's just something about the universe. Maybe it's just something about the detectors. We'll we'll we'll, we'll get ma uh, more gravitational wave detectors online in the next few years because now this technology is really really up to par. So uh, we're going to get much more in the future, but you can't really know. Um, yeah. And then, but you have to be prepared the the whole time. So I'm part of a collaboration called Engrave, um, which um, when the uh, gravitational wave collaborations are in observing mode so they have observing seasons or like observing runs which last about a year so the last one ended in 2020 like about a year ago basically um and when those are happening we have on-call teams which rotates every week 
So there's a few people whose job it is to keep track of the alerts. So the gravitational wave people will um, do very quick data reductions and send out alerts uh, saying we saw this. It could be it's probably this kind of masses, this kind of observations. Um, and occasionally you get a neutron star, neutron star merger candidate. Now, NGRA's job is not to find the counterpart, it's to follow up the counterpart when it is found. So for the finding the, the counterpart, you I've got a friend who works uh, with GOTO, which is a telescope on La Palma, um, whose job it is to slew to the position of the sky that it could be in, because the gravitational wave people give us basically a banana on the sky. A <laughs> Yeah. A map of probability that, like, in this potato... General region, area. <laughs> the most likely area. Um, so because we don't have that many gravitational wave um, detectors online yet, the regions are pretty vast, and it can be difficult to, to explore all of that. Um, but uh, in the future, when we see when we see more neutron star neutron star mergers that actually have counterparts so that makes sense to actually observe and when we have more gravitational wave detectors online which will help us triangulate and narrow down these regions then it will be much more uh, convenient to do these searches so the way it will work is the telescope will um, be able to automatically know the alerts and prioritize their observing programs so they have schedulers that you know, it's people who think about how the schedules work, but then they can work automatically, um, and they can then rapidly slew to the right position in the sky and take a few images and do a little bit of data reduction themselves and tell you this position, they, like this picture, does not look like the picture we took three days ago. There is something bright <laughs> not there before, and that's yeah. the way that you can find these transients. And there's there's like surveys that do that on the regular that just scan the sky. And they tell you, well, there's a supernova here, 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 and here. And you can have hundreds every day, hundreds of new trends. Wow. Like things in the galaxy, either it's variable stars, it can be um, just simple novae, which would be in the galaxy, supernovae from other galaxies, um, stuff like that. You, you can get so many a day uh, if That's you just amazing. scan the sky very regularly. That's very, very cool. Yeah, I, I was going to ask, like, how many supernovae? exists or how do you know how many actually occur at any one time but that's that is a lot but i guess scale right <laughs> it's not hundreds of supernovae a day but uh it's not it's 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 quite a few <laughs> i think there were like yeah 20 i think in 2018 or 2019 i uh, i looked at a database and they had twenty five thousand alerts um wow something like that, that is amazing i haven't like because i'm not really an observer anymore and yeah. i don't keep track of those like i <laughs> I could, I, could, I could run those numbers again, but it's quite a lot because they're that's, visible from a very long distance. Yeah, that is very, very cool. So what have we learned from that Kilonovae data so far? So much. Uh, first of all, uh, the short gamma ray burst coming from neutron star, neutron star mergers is, is a go. That works. Yeah. Uh, so that's pretty exciting. Um, oh, God, uh, I should have revised. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, fine. So because there is just so much that people are doing that I that is not even on my radar. People have been looking yeah. at what's called the equation of state of neutron stars using these data. Um, the upper mass limit of uh, neutron stars as well, which is still kind of up in the air. We don't really know. It's somewhere in between like two and three solar masses. 
Um, <laughs> we're not quite sure there. And so some people use that data to place limits, uh, which is very helpful. Um, some people had a look at the at the environment of the kilonova. I'm actually going to do a, um, a reanalysis of that using our own models, which are binary star evolutionary models, which kind of makes sense because, you know, it's from a binary star. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, and yes, looking at what kind of environment it's in, um, how old the population is, all of that stuff. And it seems that there's kind of a younger population as well as an old population. But, you know, there's more to come on that in the future. Um, and, yeah, this just... Oh, the, the day it was published, there were 80 papers on that object. Wow. Because all of the papers were held back, were embargoed until the release, until, yeah. the, until the press release. And, like, pff, it flooded are all like news outlets like because we've got um yeah something called the archive with new publications every day and like that they yeah everything. smashed it was it was crazy and um pretty it was pretty cool but yeah i, I haven't read like even a small percentage of all i know just so much yeah there's just so much information that can be covered so specifically with what you're doing so you're researching about the life cycle and what can we get from all of that? Right. So uh, the what's really interesting about gravitational waves um, is the kind of regimes that it probes. We get information from some of the most massive black holes that we've ever seen. <laughs> um, like, sorry, most massive stellar black holes, obviously. There's different kinds of black holes. There's the black, black <laughs> holes that like, are the like, dead corpse of stars and they're tens, few hundred, like a hundred solar masses, something like that. And then there's supermassive black holes that are millions or billions of times the mass of the sun. These are in the middle of galaxies. This is not what I'm talking about here. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's really interesting to see what kind of population of basically dead stars uh, we have because we have to be able to reproduce those. We have to be able to make those somehow um, with our stellar models, if our stellar models are right, you know? Yeah, to be able to make those, uh, but it can also tell us um, about how stars interacted, in, like in 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 um, uh, sorry multiple systems. So there are stars, uh, there are sorry black holes that have been found uh, with gravitational waves. One in particular recently that was published, uh, I think it was discovered in twenty nineteen. That was way too massive. It could not have been made by a star. It came from um, two black holes, an 85 or 80 solar mass and 60 solar mass. Like, I'm giving around, it's around yeah. the ballpark. <laughs> ballpark, 60 and 80, around that. Um, uh, the, you can't make those with stars as we understand it. You can't make a 60 solar mass black hole, you can't make an 80 solar mass black hole. You can make things that are lighter and things that are heavier, but you can't make the, this range of black holes. And the reason for that is that a star that would normally make that sort of mass uh, of a remnant kind of goes through a weird process called perinstability, which is a weird phase of matter where the core of the star is super hot, but also not very dense compared to what it should normally be. And photons split apart uh, in positron and um, electron pairs. And the reason that's a problem is because photons is the only thing that is keeping that star from collapsing. 
And when that happens, um, nuclear fusion starts again, but in a runaway manner. It just keeps going faster and faster and faster and faster until the whole star is disrupted. And that means that there is nothing left behind. And so all of that mass that could, like, if it wasn't for that process that would normally go into making a black hole of that mass is instead completely disrupted and spread out into space. And so there is what we call the upper mass gap. There is a lower mass gap as well. Maybe, maybe not. People think not. It's complicated. (laughs) There is probably definitely an upper mass gap. Um, (laughs) Probably definitely. (laughs) Definitely. Well, we, we can't make those. And so either there is something we don't understand with how stars that massive evolve and die, or it's because these black holes were not formed by stars. They were formed in a merger. So there were mergers before the final merger that gave us the gravitational wave, which would be possible if you have um, what we call a hierarchical system. So you have two stars that orbit each other. There's a hierarchy in the multiplicity. It's not like four stars mm-hmm. that orbit each other in a chaotic manner. You have like two stars in the middle and then you've got another um, like another system, binary system, and they kind of orbit each other like that. And so you can have like two stars, mer- like two black holes merging and then two black holes merging and then those two merging. Oh. That's how you could get your thing. But you know, ex- that's very like brand new field. <laughs> need to do simulations to understand yeah. how easily that happens. If that's like how possible that is on those timescales, because obviously it's easy to say, well, you know, two things merge and then two things merge after that. But this stuff needs to happen on a timescale that is short enough that it, it will happen within the current lifetime of the universe. And that's pretty yeah. You need to have a star that goes through its entire lifetime, which isn't too bad for black holes because these these are going to last five million, three million years, five million years max, something like that. So pretty fast. But then they need to spiral into each other, and that takes a long time. <laughs> so um, there, there's a lot of stuff that is still unknown, but that is just so exciting because. It is. We're just asking more questions than we're answering. At yeah, this which is it's just so much speculation. That's a that's amazing. I love yeah. it. That's very very cool. So, because you're able to get these snapshots of star lifetimes, you're I guess you're now looking for similar situations for that particular scenario. Is that kind of how you work it out? Um, so do you mean looking for similar situations in models or in real life? As in the the data in real life. So you said that, you know, you, you get snapshots of the nurseries and then you get snapshots, you know, all the way through this life cycle. And, you know, you, you have to be able to find this scenario where you've got these, you know, stars starting to merge at different stages. Yeah, that, that, that would be very, very difficult. So we, we know, uh, of. Um, multiple systems, so that's not something that we kind of pulled out of a hat. Where yeah. That especially massive stars tend to prefer having several friends, so that's not too hard. Um, but then knowing the lifetime is more of a crunching the physics. That's the that's the the bigger thing. Um, yeah. As we get more gravitational wave events, we'll also get better rates, so we'll get a better idea. 
Um, but yeah, there's loads to do uh, when it comes to the actual, it's mechanics, you know, you need to create um, different systems with different parameters and put it all yeah. Because there, there's several mechanisms that occur when you have more than you know two stars orbiting each other. You've got special kinds of instabilities that can occur uh, that can help accelerate this process. So that's quite interesting. Where if you don't put enough physics, it doesn't work. But when you put in complex <laughs> stuff, it actually helps. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes you're you're not making your life harder by 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 making it more complex. You're just getting closer to the answer. But yeah. Yeah, I've got. I, I know a few people who who work on that kind of stuff. For me, it's magic. Uh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I have a friend who worked on something like that for just some other system that has nothing to do with these things, but still multiple systems. And so it was a triple system. And at some point in the evolution, um, the orbits become chaotic, and so they do crazy things like wow. the, like the picture of of that of that orbit is insane. Like it looks like loopy. <laughs> like. And then, they, and, they, and, and, and then something merges and then it calms down again. And it's like, okay, <laughs> for a few thousand years, the system is like all over the place. Oh my goodness. Um, but the thing is, because those phases are so short, um, yeah. that you see, then it's not something that's easily observable because obviously mm. if they, if they last the blink of an eye in, in, in yeah. the lifetime of the universe, then you're not likely to be able to observe it very easily. And, um, capture those things yeah yeah it's again all about scale mm -hmm. so exactly. yeah with the i guess the amount of data that we still have from you know 25 years ago is do people often troll all of the old data to see whether they can find these things that they're looking for that they can't find now is that a thing yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that's quite that's quite interesting. Uh, so, working with archi archival data is definitely definitely a thing. Um, I mean, most of the data that I work with is not stuff that is fresh out of the telescope. It's stuff that's already been taken by people. Um, there's a guy who made his entire career uh, because he had a brilliant idea. Um, he was like, oh, well, these supernovae have exploded in these galaxies, but the Hubble Space Telescope took pictures of these galaxies a little while ago. Let's see if we can find the star that... That's specific, yeah. If it's gone, then it's the progenitor. And he found a whole bunch, and he got a medal for it, actually. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's one of the biggest guys in the field. He leads... Yeah. The he's not anymore, but he, he uh, helped develop the team of Engrave and stuff like that. And... Um, and yeah, it's, and it was just looking at archival data and yeah, that in a clever way. And it taught us a lot about the kind of stars that lead to supernovae because we could actually see them, you know? Yes. And actually get all the data to get a bit more information about, you know, how that tracks and how it kind of leads towards that event. That's very neat. Exactly. Because then you can compare that to the models and see what it looks like. So it's really awesome. Yeah. So with your um, area of focus, how did you kind of, from all the things you could possibly choose from, what led you down the path to supernova and kilonova? I just like things that go boom. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Straightforward to the point. Excellent. 
<laughs> I like things that are go boom. I, li I like understanding how things work. So I think standard evolution is definitely something that makes that makes sense. Um, more sense than the spectropolarimetry because that was very niche. It was it was a very niche thing. Um, the the thing I'm doing now has much more scope, which is kind of overwhelming. Of like, oh, there's so many things to do, but at the same time, it's, it, it kind of suits me a little better. Um, I like things that go boom. So that's <laughs> um, and it's just such an exciting new field, Kilonovi. Um, and obviously, I was on the outskirts of that for a long time, but hopefully, you know, I I'll be able to contribute to it and get more into it as we get more data and and really be an active partici participant um in this field but yeah just just massive stars are just my favorite stars <laughs> they do crazy yeah. things they do crazy things <laughs> and i keep getting distracted i keep getting distracted. <laughs> i'm supposed to work on kilonovi and their environment and that's it 80% of what I've done in my postdoc has not been that. But <laughs> partially because the thing was not working, now it's working, so it's going to be better. It's going to be more focused, I promise. Um, <laughs> but my boss is, comes from supernovae and progenitors, so we also got distracted by other things. Like, we collaborated on a paper with a bunch of other people on the progenitor of... Um, um, or the environment of, of a supernova, a weird supernova, uh, I'm trying to, uh, hopefully it'll get published, but I just submitted a paper on looking at um, evolutionary pathways for superluminous supernovae. Uh, so it's just <laughs> all of these things that do crazy stuff kind of get my attention a little too easily, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, how can you possibly not with all the things that are happening? There's just too much. <laughs> shiny thing, shiny thing. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Being able to you know work on all of these things and able to you know switch your focus from time to time—that's great. Like, there's so much to learn, so much to do, so much to see. It's yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> That's very cool. So you put up these videos on Twitter. They're very cool, very interesting. But what yeah, what got you into doing that? Why did you start doing the outreach? Oh, I've always loved. Outreach it makes me it, it makes me feel useful in a way that science sometimes does not. Science is a very selfish endeavor, um, like for myself and for my immediate community. But realistically, we're not curing cancer. Um, <laughs> my, my my very niche interests in science are not are not any use to any anyone in real life. But I can share my knowledge of space and you know entertain and inspire other people with that. Um, and I've always loved doing that because I'm just really passionate about space and sharing that energy with other people makes me feel happy. You know, tonight I'm talking to a bunch of 11 year olds about space and, Ooh, and I can't wait because it's, it's going to be fun. Yeah. Um, so I just really love that. And uh, half of my videos on the internet because I wish I had more time to make proper videos. <laughs> so half of them are kind of just in the moment like someone said something really stupid for clicks on the internet <laughs> no absolutely not this is not how anything works and let me tell you why um <laughs> there is a lot of that <laughs> but i tried to make it informative and interesting um yeah and you know and that and that's a good thing i mean um when you talk about the way that you know your area of science doesn't really help in the real world it doesn't but it helps in the way that, you know, it allows us to understand more about where we are 
in this space. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's a different type of help. Absolutely. I didn't mean to say it has no value. I just meant to say it has no practical... There's no Application to... It's no practical yeah. need. It's not going to put food on your table. It's not a practical skill that's going to help you build your IKEA for... Yeah. <laughs> it's not something tangible. It's so, it's still valuable. That's It's part of, yeah. the, of what makes us human to seek understanding of things that are way beyond us. And I think it's still yes. impo- important. But I see this as part of... It's more... I see this more as entertainment than education. So I try to yeah. educate in everything I do, but I am not lecturing people. This is <laughs> an exam at the end. It's okay if we simplify. It's okay if they don't understand all of it. So long as yeah. you feel inspired and lifted by what I say, that's kind of all yes. I seek. Um, and that's what I love doing. Actually, that's something I will advertise. Uh, <laughs> I don't get paid for any of it, but on my website there, like there's all my contacts and my emails and my Twitter and everything. And I do things online via Zoom to like schools or um, astronomical societies or um, or events like conferences or whatever. I'm a public speaker and I will speak at your event if you let me know and, you know, we can find a date. So I don't charge for educational purposes. Um, so just, you know, if, if, if you're interested in my work and in what I have to say, then just let me know because you can just book me. I'm very happy to uh, just spend some time talking about these things. That's something I, I do in my, in my off time because I'm passionate about it. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. It's not about it not being important because, you know, life, the universe and everything is about, you know, who we are, what we do, why we're here. And, you know, it's, it's such a literally nebulous topic for most people because we don't really see much of what it involves outside of popular culture. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very interesting. And, it's, and those numbers are so confusing and mind-boggling. Like, it's very yeah. interesting because we have people going too far the other way. So they're, they're, there's a guy corrected on TikTok recently I was like, oh, if beetles just go supernova, we won't have nice for three weeks because they'll be so bright. And it's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, if a supernova exploded close enough to Earth that we would have no nice for three weeks, we would have other problems to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, it was it was crazy because like that's absolutely not accurate at all. But obviously, because the numbers are so crazy in general, it's hard yeah. to know what is fact and what is fiction. Yes. Unless you actually run the numbers, you can't know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And some people are like, oh, but it's so far away that uh, maybe it has already happened. It's not that far away. It's 600 light years away. 600 years is nothing in the life of a star, but people, <laughs> oh, it's just really far away. So it's dead already, which is, you know, the, the, the concept <laughs> scale because they don't match on either side. Yeah. You know, if you're not used to these numbers, your brain can't put them together. Uh, and it's, yeah, not- it's just this weird blur between now and then. It's really big and it's, you know, and they just parrot something they've heard before that, oh, the stars you see are already dead because they're so far away, which is, a. by the way, that's a lie. If, if you've heard that before, <laughs> in fact, 
uh, and you believe it, it's absolutely not accurate. The stars that we see <laughs> in the sky, they're really bright and very close. That's why we can see them with our eyes. Um, and they're at most like a few thousand light years away. So they're absolutely not dense at all. Like <laughs> wish upon the stars and, and you're fine. Some of the stars that you see with telescopes dedicated as uh, like professional telescopes, they are so far away that they are like 10 billion light years away. Yeah, those are bright. Then. <laughs> but these stars are not they're not just in the milky way they're in the solar neighborhood <laughs> it's next door so we're fine ah uh, yeah it's bad enough that we've got you know fake news about all the stuff that happens you know terrestrially and then now we have to deal with space fake news goodness. i know it's like <laughs> a science communicator because like these people they only do it for cloud they do it for clicks um but they contribute to people losing faith in science because they see all of these science news that are bullshit and then they turn out to be bullshit yeah. and they're like well scientists don't know it's like scientists freaking know uh, <laughs> it's just that it's not scientists telling you that shit. it's just some random <laughs> his research on the internet and, and citation please yeah, exactly. <laughs> it didn't happen um and it's very frustrating but because and I just, just don't understand because honestly, <laughs> honestly, the truth is often so much more interesting than the lie. But they, they just, they, they have the click, they're just better marketers. They have the clickbait yes. recipe and they use yep. that for clicks without any uh, regard for the consequences or what that means for, for science because this is not their business and it's very frustrating. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but that's why the stuff that you're doing is really great because, you know, you, you go there, you call them out on it, and then you add a little bit more information and say, this is the thing. This is how it works. This is actually what happens. And that's even more interesting and much better than what you just heard. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting the sense that quite a few people are getting into that sort of debunking um, yeah. content, that debunking misinformation. I think people are starting to get sick of it. So I'm quite hopeful that will like we've kind of got gotten to a peak of misinformation where it kind of got out of hand without us noticing but we're talking about this more and more and more and eventually people will just be so sick of it that it, <laughs> it hopefully eventually will kind of self-regulate itself where it's just not yeah. going to work anymore and it's not going to be advantageous to you know for-profit businesses to use those techniques that are pretty dishonest to be honest um, they are we'll see what happens yeah well one can hope <laughs> i'm hopeful i'm trying to be hopeful uh, yes definitely <laughs> so let's get into some of those other questions that are completely unrelated so what hobby or interest do you have that's most unrelated to your field of work right so i do roller derby which has nothing to do with <gasps> fun yeah it's all physical. So roller derby is a sport that is played on roller skates where um, you have two teams uh, going against each other. Uh, five people on track at of both teams. So five versus five on track at um, any given time. And one of the people in each team is tasked to score as many points as possible. And the way you score points is by lapping the people from the other team. Uh, yep. And you prevent... The other person from lapping you is by hitting them and getting in the <laughs> so it's a full contact sport on wheelie shoes the call was disconnected resuming 
Roller derby, contact yes. sports, lots of fun, violent. <laughs> it's not violent, it's fully consensual. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really fun. And we wear proper pads and all that, and we nearly don't get hurt, you know. Breaks happen occasionally, but not to me so far. That's cool. Um, That's all right. So what position is yours? Um, so I played both jamming and blocking. So jamming is the person who scored the points and blocking is the person who prevents them. Um, That's cool. Uh, in the last season, which was my first competitive season, but obviously COVID wouldn't do much. Um, and I'll be doing more jamming, I think, this season. Um, kind nice. of depending on what the team does, because I'm, I'm not super hung up on what position I play. So if people prefer things, I'll be like, well, I'll do whatever. Like the next game, I'm not even going to be on track because we've got quite a few people that are willing to play. So I'm happy to ref, like be, be one of the referees. And so I'll be in the middle of the track. You're still on skates and like, <laughs> and, but like checking their positions and making and counting the points. So that that's the job I'll be doing at the end of the proper game. So yeah, nice. there's lots to be done on skates. Um, so that's really fun. I love it. That's awesome. That's cool. So is that, yeah, is Roller Derby like, pretty popular in Auckland? Um, it's okay. I mean, we've got we've got two teams in Auckland, but Auckland's a big city of one and a half million people. Um, it's, uh, it's not too bad, but Roller Derby in general is pretty niche as a, as a sport. It is. Uh, but it's surprising how, how such a niche sport, wherever you go, there's a team. Like, yeah. There's 16 girls who like just found a gym that will let them use their, their basketball <laughs> court like on a Friday afternoon or something like that, and then they're training. Um, so it's it's amazing. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. That's brilliant. So you've just been doing that for was it? Did you say one year or? So I've been in the um, competition season for ah. one year. So. Um, I started in 2018, July 2018. Uh, cool. So it's been nearly three years that I've been nice. practicing the sport, but it takes a little while to be able to actually play it because of yeah. because it's a full contact sport on skates. You're not allowed to actually play the game before you've demonstrated your ability to play it safely. You know, for, yes. for your safety and others. So you've got to, you know, be good enough on your skates and and understand the rules sufficiently to understand where you're allowed to hit, where you're not allowed to hit. Because it's not just a matter of rules, it's a matter of safety. So, for example, you're not allowed to hit the back, like the spine is a no. Yeah. You can't hit with your fists. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. This, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, you know, it all makes sense in the end. It's cool. Yeah. So... They've got local teams in Perth. I haven't had nice. a chance to go check them out, but it's been, yeah, I, I get the impression it's been around for almost 10 years. It's very cool. Yeah. Well, probably yeah. been longer than that, but it's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the sport started in the, I think it was very popular in the seventies in America or something like that, but it was completely different. It was, it wasn't really a sport. It was more like wrestling. Yeah. Um, but now it's a proper sport with proper rules. We have kept something from that era though. Uh, we have Derby names. So you pick a name when for when you're on track, you know, you're not called yep. the last name or anything like that. That's cool. Which What's yours? Fun. I'm Dr. Nova. Dr. Nova. That's a good My one. Name I is, love it. It's, it's so weird. It used to be Supernova, but it immediately got shortened to Nova, which 
technically isn't the same astronomical object, but I wasn't going to. No. <laughs> People are like, no, no one can see it. Like, no, that it's too simple. As much as we can manage when we're on track and yelling your name to get your attention. No, that it is. Um, and then when I got my PhD, my whole team in Sheffield was like, Dr. Nova, Dr. Nova. And they kept calling me that. Um, so that's my official name. But when I'm on track, people just call me Nova. And that's cool. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's very weird because like when you're in the team, you call people by their Derby name and sometimes you don't know really their real name. So yes. um, when we have league meetings, meetings and I have to do attendance because I'm the secretary of the league, it's like, who the fuck is like pigeon <laughs> on the list? Oh, Emma, great. It's funny when you actually get into those circles where you just, you, you know, the entire community revolves around the nicknames. Because um, I used to work at an internet provider and this was, you know, back when there was still dial-up, you know, very small. Um, so everyone had their usernames and every, and it wasn't as though you had first name dot last name like you do with all the fancy corporate stuff. Um, it was whatever you wanted. Um, and... It got to the point where one of my co-workers introduced me to his child by my username because he couldn't remember off the top of my head what my actual name was. <laughs> uh, oh my god! Yeah. yeah, it happens. <laughs> yeah, it happens all the time for us. Like, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> okay. And which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? I don't know. I wasn't that much of a reader. I know. I'm. I mean, I'm of the generation that should say Harry Potter, but I got bored after the second <laughs> book, so I'm going to upset a lot of people. Sorry, I didn't really do that. Oh. Um, so I didn't have really a favorite book that was like fiction. Um, yeah. But I remember very fondly um, one of the first books I got about astronomy. <laughs> which is planets, and it had all i mean it was a series of books it was like it was still at the time the nine planets so there was a book yep. per planet and it had a like squishy cover because it was for kids like for like girls and it was great and like that that that's one of the things that sparked my my interest in astronomy and in science and i still remember that to this day because it was such a lovely little collection um and it was it was so good i love that Aww. Yeah. Well, a lot of the people I've spoken to, the books that they loved as a child tended to be related to what they ended up pursuing later on in some way. It's like, yeah, yeah this is the thing that, you know, that really intrigues me. This is the thing that I'm now passionate about. It's very, it's great. Like you yeah. just see this little seeds being planted. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. And last one, what advice would you give someone who wants to do what you do and what advice should they ignore? I have so many. So, so many pieces of advice. Which one should I pick? Um, learn to code and learn early. <laughs> is <laughs> I would say. Um, and also, you're not stupid. Science is just hard. That's something I keep telling yeah. my students consistently. And I have to keep telling myself, uh, you're not dumb. It's just that science is hard. When it starts getting <laughs> difficult is when it starts getting good. So Yes. Um, and what advice should they ignore? Uh, oh, uh, well, if you're going to be in uni and you've got all of the people who are like, oh, just go to the library, we'll just work all through the night for the exam tomorrow, don't do that. Don't, don't pull all <laughs> That's a stupid thing to do. I, mean, I, I, I never did it, and, and the people who kind of forced me into that, I hated them with a passion. Um, <laughs> I, I just revise the day before and then have a good night's sleep 
like <laughs> your anxiety will thank you. <laughs> yeah, don't listen. Just don't, don't listen to these people. Yep, definitely. They're not good. No, and yeah, it, it's a false economy. <laughs> it's just just. It's, <laughs> I, uni was amazing like the people who talk the most are the ones that have the less to the least to offer in my in my experience there were two kinds of big talker the ones that are like oh i i never do anything blah blah blah, blah because they were they proud they prided themselves into being able to still get through without putting any ounce of effort which is like weird flex but okay do you uh, and the people who have worked for the whole time, which is like, okay, you have no life. Congratulations. <laughs> this is not what's not clicking. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, people that gloat about either doing more more work than they should or not enough work is just they're not worth your your energy whatsoever. Yes, usually they're lying about true. about it either way. To be fair, like so. It's good good advice because yeah I mean, when you're getting to when you're at uni you know there's a lot of rubbish there's a lot of bs that happens and everyone's so young and impressionable and there's people it's peer pressure but like in a very subtle sense like because you're comparing yeah. yourself to your peers and you need the reassurance of like am i doing what i'm supposed to do um yes because you you don't know yourself in in work and in a learning and i mean you've been in school for so long but You've not really it's a different learning environment different learning when you go and yeah like some people have been challenged by that point but for a lot of people like myself included you haven't really been challenged by school let's be honest like <laughs> you spend most of the time yeah. walking around and you, still, <laughs> and you still got there um which makes sense you know because school isn't just about learning it's about socializing and making human beings that are going to be functional in the workplace you know doesn't always yes. work but that's part of it <laughs> um but there is so much more to learn about yourself and how you work and how you learn when you're in uni that it is confusing but yeah letting yourself be impressed by people that are saying a ton of shit because you know they're probably they're probably full of shit to be honest <laughs> like if yes. being really loud about it don't <laughs> don't pay no mind lesson one hone your bullshit detector <laughs> yes skills to pay the bills <laughs> yeah, absolutely like this one will save you time in the workplace 100 percent. that's probably the thing that will that, that will be the most useful out of a degree yes i think so <laughs> very cool okay so if people would like to learn more about what you do and you know more about you mm -hmm. where can they go so i'm uh, on twitter and on tiktok when i'm not gone for two weeks because of writing papers and stuff but i'm mostly there uh and i answer all the questions at sidonahi which is a weird spelling s-y-d-o-n-a-h-i it's a weird username from the early to from the 2000s i've <laughs> i should probably have changed that handle at some point but it kind of grew with my platform and so yes i'm stuck with it now it's a remnant of when the internet was in its infancy i can't get rid of it <laughs> stupid username I, I got when i was 14 and it's like we're going to live with it okay um <laughs> and there's my website which is much more sensible because it's my name it's h h f 
stevens.com and there there's links to my twitter if you can't type the word um there's my email if you need to contact me my github you can find more about my research and you can find a list of all of the psycom events that i've participated in and 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 that kind of stuff to see if there's anything that um floats your boat which they'll probably will because i've at this point i've done everything under the sun i've done radio and <laughs> i haven't done is tv interview that's the like everything <laughs> So one day. Cool. Okay. So thank you so much, Eloise. This thank you so amazing much for talking me. to you about all this. It was so yeah, fun. this was so great. Yeah. So learning so much. Gosh, I crash coursed last week about stars and it's like, oh my God, so much stuff. And at one point it's like, no, nope, shutting down right now. Too much maths. <laughs> but so <Okay>. interesting. <laughs> Same. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah so every interesting. day. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Well, you know, so as you said science is hard it's it's a thing and that's very cool it's what makes it good it's what makes it interesting exactly it's the problem solving otherwise it wouldn't be fun exactly cool all right well thank you again it has been absolutely awesome can't wait to see all the other stuff that you're working on and yeah yeah very cool you. and <laughs> thank you so much and have a great evening yeah you too you too have a great uh yeah whatever time it is for you morning, morning. <laughs> just barely. have a good <laughs> afternoon have a great lunch okay bye yes. bye when you think about the vastness of space things that we don't know but could learn about is literally astronomical it's such a relatively young field and what we know just barely scratches the surface of what there is to find and with further technological advancements we're going to keep being able to discover new things and refine findings even from decades old data if you're looking for a pursuit that's about life, the universe and everything, this might well be the place to start. To learn more about Eloise and what we discuss on this show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steampowered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also reach out to Eloise on Twitter, TikTok and her website, the links for which will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.